Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. This is Christopher Mitchell, and I'm back with, well, there's lots of ways to pronounce it, but we'll just call him Sean Gonsalves today, because that's how he pronounces it. That's right. That's right. Gonsalves. So what's going on, Sean? So much. So much. I feel like um, now's the time that the rubber is hitting the road for states, for local communities, at the federal level, there's a lot of lot of broadband activity, so it's just you know. That's why you took vacation this week and next week. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I had to let my brain, uh, you know, soak. Good on you, man. You can't just let that stuff expire. Take it from, uh, take it from me. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna talk about a bunch of different things today. We're gonna talk about. We're gonna kick off talking about Syracuse, uh, which is gonna touch on CBRS because that's part of their plan there. Uh, we're going to talk just ever so briefly about the FCC improving the definition of broadband. Uh, we're going to just do a quick update on what's happening with ACP and the letter of credit uh, toward the end. So uh, we're going to we're going to give you the good stuff to begin, and then we're going to be wrapping into some of the the stuff that perhaps not everyone is interested in with the uh, administrative stuff toward the end. I'm excited to talk about it. There's a lot of things that are going on out there. We just had a killer connect this show last week. Uh, it was uh, terrific with uh, Doug and Kim and Travis, and I highly recommend that people give that a listen. If you haven't, connectthisshow.com. And uh, we'll be putting some snippets up, but there's a lot of great topics that we had on during that. So with that, Sean, Associate Director of Communications for the Community Broadband Networks team, well, I'll, I'll just say, like, we got a bunch of great articles on communitynets.org uh, that Carl Bodie has written. You've edited uh, some other folks. Emma's got a great article up there about Hoopa Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you just wrote one about Syracuse and what they're doing. So let's jump into that one. Carl and I sort of tag teamed on that. Um, so Syracuse, city of 145,000, which we were in actually not too long ago. Like a lot of cities, and this is why the story, I think, is instructive, because um, like a lot of cities who are probably not going to get much in the by way of bead dollars, if any at all, are, you know, looking to put their rescue plan dollars to work. And so Syracuse, you know, has a significant number of, you know, low income residents and they want to get quality broadband connections to those residents at little or no cost. And so the city of Syracuse um, put three and a half million of uh, their ARPA funds to fund uh, this um, this effort that's been dubbed Surge Link, which is the name for this wireless network um, that they're building that uh, will, um, it's fixed wireless, and uh, they want to be able to deliver that to 2,500 underserved Syracuse households. So um, I think they're mostly in, I, I forget which part of the city, but not just in one particular part of the city. Tell me, tell me the name of the partner of the city in this effort, because it's not confusing at all. You, uh, U.S. Ignite. <laughs> oh no, no, no. The, uh, the 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 company that they're working with also U.S. Ignite is yes a partner as well, but uh, the name of the company isn't it Community Broadband? Oh, Network? that's right. Yeah, exactly. I, I forgot about that. Right there. Right. Uh, yeah, they're they're based in Geneva, uh, New York, but they're called Community Broadband Networks. And as I had to note in the story, no relation to us. Yeah, I was gonna say if we merge with them, it'd be very easy. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't have to change our business cards or anything. 
So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think this is cool. I mean, one of my takeaways is that I'm glad to see Syracuse is doing this. Uh, you know, I think we need to see cities trying things. I, um, I don't know the deep ins and outs of this and people who are more familiar might say, ah, I wish they'd done things a little differently. Right. But I think the most important thing is that cities get going on trying to solve these issues and they can learn and they can improve. And, uh, and that's one of the things that, that I think, you know, from my management philosophy to the extent that I have one aside from wait till the last second and make a quick decision that you'll regret later. Um, I think right. it is important. <laughs> it is important to, uh, make a plan, try to execute it rather than trying to sit around in a room and say, we're going to, we're going to refine this plan for a year. And before we do anything, you just got to get out there and do stuff. Yeah. You got to get out there and do stuff. And so exactly hats off to Syracuse for saying, you know what, we're going to tackle this um, and we're going to put some real money into it um, and move forward with the plan. Now they're using uh CBRS was that citizens band radio service. You know, and obviously, you know, I'm not like a super techie guy, particularly on on the wireless side. But, you know, my understanding and you know better than I do. But CBRS has had some mixed results. It's sort of an experimental technology that I think that has a lot of promise. Oh, I think we should unpack that for a sec after you finish this thought. Okay, there there have been communities that have used CBRS and didn't like the result. They didn't it didn't give the kind of quality connection that they were hoping for. And they moved on. And so so it's like. You know, building on what you said earlier, it's like Syracuse is jumping in. You know, we spoke to Brooke Schneider, who's the senior information officer there for the city. And, you know, she was pretty candid and said, look, fixed wireless, you know, uh, technology, you know, provides quick time to market. And they wanted to get something out there right away. And I think we'll probably, you know, learn as they go along. And then, you know, so hopefully communities that take this kind of targeted kind of approach see it as an iterative process and something that they can learn and build on and not just sort of, you know, offer something and then say, all right, we're done and move on to the next thing. Right. Uh, we just spoke last week about a uh, wireless effort in Rhode Island as well, which uh, I feel like uh, has gone well for solving some of the issues that they were targeting. But anyway, the the CBRS, uh, I think I was thinking of it this morning, how to explain it real quick to avoid getting too into it. And I think mm. of it as like it's embodied by the idea of yoink, which is to say that um, you have uh, the spectrum that the Navy uh, has the right to use. And if they're not using it in a given area at that time, then other people can use it. And so, you know, you have radios that are constantly basically being like, can I use this spectrum right now? And as long as the Navy's not operating in the area, they can use it. As soon as the Navy comes in and needs it, yoink, those radios all have to turn off <laughs> and let the Navy use it. So you're telling me that if you're on the coast, that could be an issue. But if you're in Kansas, the Navy's probably not going to need it quite as much. Right. Although I'll remind you that the Navy does have air, have uh, I was going to say uh, air training facilities and other facilities around where they might be using some of this in different ways. So uh, absolutely. If you're in San Diego, uh, good luck. You know, <laughs> it's yeah, going to be difficult because right. you're right next to the border also. So um, you got real challenges. But uh, then the spectrum is split even further in that you have uh, entities that have paid for prioritized access to it. And the cable companies tended to buy this at auction and a few others. And so then there's some stuff that's left over for others to use as long as they follow basic rules. And, uh, you know, um, Rye is a certified uh, installer of CBRS. Uh, we've, we've tried to learn quite a bit about this. And I think it's just 
useful to note that this has worked out very well in areas where you don't have a lot of congestion with spectrum. So out at Hoopa Valley, Spagy uh, and the networks we've talked about with Acorn Wireless before, uh, they're really putting it to great use. And it's, it's fantastic for them up in the Redwoods. Uh, in other areas, uh, Yonkers, uh, their experience was not as good. I think there is more congestion. They're building materials uh, for trying to get it into big apartment buildings. Uh, it just didn't provide a, a good option. I think Tucson as as well didn't have a great experience with it, although yeah. we haven't checked in with them recently, so I don't really know. I think that might have been a lack of outreach in the community as opposed to a technical issue. But uh, you're right. They did they did put a big effort behind CBRS. So there are definitely mixed results. Now, I want to note that there's a trade organization of the big wireless companies that want to gobble up all the spectrum and not let anyone else use it. So we'll have to pay them to have access to it. That's a trade, trade group called CTIA. And they've been telling everyone that CBRS doesn't work. Now, when we're talking about how CBRS isn't doing the job good enough in places like Yonkers, the reason for that is because there's not enough spectrum available. Like this, the concept of sharing spectrum is good. It works. It's proven. We need to do a lot more of it. And so I just want to be careful as people are talking about this to understand mm -hmm. different nuances around like, where is there a problem because of the concept of sharing spectrum? I don't really see one. It's working out pretty well and we could do a lot more of it. It would be more efficient use of the spectrum that the public owns and leases to private companies or, or others. Um, but there are problems because there's so little spectrum that's been dedicated to this that you just can't get a lot of people connected with high quality connections. So I hope we'll see more of this kind of approach. Right. Well, and, you know, to me, the, the the takeaway, I think you hit on right off the bat on Syracuse, which is, um, and I think about this a lot in, in, in Massachusetts where I live, there's a lot of cities and towns that are not going to get B dollars that are itching to do something. And one of the things in talking to different folks in these different communities is to remind them that, listen, you don't necessarily need to build an, a citywide municipal broadband network. It's worth thinking about more targeted approaches. You know, Syracuse perhaps is a city like other places where, you know, where, where you can learn from. And I think, it, you know, it's important to think about what these other cities are doing, what they're doing in Cleveland, what they're doing in Baltimore and Project Waves and in and, and these different efforts of trying to, as you say, get out there and, 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 and do something and not just debate and refine a plan for a municipal fiber, you know, citywide fiber network, uh, you know, until the cows come home. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've posed to different people in different communities is if we had a resurgence of the pandemic that specifically was a strain that was particularly harmful to children and we absolutely had to shut down the schools. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about like a debate about whether, oh, like, is it worth it or not? Like something, I mean, it could go real dark, right? And like you literally, we have to quarantine children just for a, a thought experiment. How many kids would still be without high quality access in the home compared to how many were without it in 2020? And most people think that number has not changed that much. Mm. Uh, I think it has gotten better in a number of places, but there's still tons of places where, you know, that Comcast Internet Essentials isn't isn't getting the job done, where they don't have an alternative uh, and we need to do better. And this is, uh, you know, the beginning of doing better, I think. Um, the one last thing I wanted to throw in before we move on is that one of the things that should be great about CBRS and I think would be great for another solution in this is the prospect of, of um, this is, I mean, in fact, it's actually, 
I'm going to guess that CBRS is actually more of a mobile wireless in some ways with uh, certain implementations. You could do it fixed or not. But mm. one of the goals is that you give a family a puck. You know, they could get it at a library or something. They mm. take it mm-hmm. home. There doesn't have to be an installation on the home. And, you know, if you have a situation where kids are spending one night in one place and then they spend Wednesday and Thursdays in a different place and that's still under the same CBRS network, like they can move around with it. And that's that's what we need for these families. Yeah, I mean, that that's actually really cool and more in line with, I think, the reality, you know, that, you know, lots of families are dealing with. That's a great point. So speaking of great points, the FCC uh, is uh, moving forward with uh, improving the definition of broadband. Uh, you know, uh, it's been it's been a minute. <laughs> <laughs> We're approaching basically, I mean, the, the the speed definition that we are using right now was adopted, I want to say, eight years ago, mm-hmm. maybe eight and a half years ago now, which means it was based on research that is almost 10 years old. <laughs> uh, needs have changed over that time. <laughs> Uh, we're just going to say we're just going to say very briefly about this. We're not going to get in deep on it, uh, but uh, the FCC, I think they're poised to adopt a new definition that's 100 by 20. What's your first reaction to that? My first reaction is great because I wouldn't expect them to do anything more because not that they shouldn't, but given the kind of the political realities and, and, and you know, who they've got in their ear, um, I'm quite sure that um you know, obviously, it's easy to make the case that it should be a symmetrical, uh, you know, 100. Um, but I'm sure that there are different, uh, you know, um, elements out there that would like to, to keep it at 100 over 20. Right. And I think this gets to a question of what should this definition do? Should this definition reflect the minimum capacity that is needed for your typical family or typical household uh, to use the applications that are available today? Or should this be a definition that is like forward looking and tries to spur innovation and that sort of thing? Absolutely. And I I fall squarely in the camp of thinking about this in terms of peak usage down the road and not just what's sort of good enough for t- for today. And then, you know, and then we'll have this perennial debate every 10 years or so about how hopelessly outdated uh, the definition is. So I think I think the FCC might have. Uh have then come up with a strategy and I don't fully understand this yet. I mean, I just saw this an hour or two ago, so I haven't had time to, to give it a thought or to ask people who are smarter than me, uh, what, uh, they think about it. So, you know, I'll feel pretty dumb if in two weeks I'm like, Oh, this is terrible. But, um, right now I'm feeling pretty good about the fact that they're suggesting that they want to have like a visionary goal then of a gigabit down 500 megabit up. Uh, to me, that seems reasonable. Uh, that's where we want to be. We want people to, and this is this gets to like our electric grid, right? Like we make sure there's plenty of electricity out there, well more than every family needs today because of that margin for growth. We don't know what's going to be happening, and we should be doing that with our networks too. And I think that sort of that sort of reach goal of what we're looking for, putting that into statute, putting that into words, not statute in this case, but putting that into a, a rule can be a, a good step. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll see where it goes now that they finally have a uh, three two majority. Maybe they can get some a few things done right now. I'll just also say that I've uh, I've often talked about the need for more symmetrical networks, but I've never felt that they have to be perfectly symmetrical Mm. Uh, in my mind. 500 megabits up a gigabit up is basically the same for the purpose of the vast majority of people. So that's mm-hmm. not something I'm going to like freak out about myself. You're not going to die on that hill. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> there's so many other hills that I can choose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm still on the, I'm, I'm like capital, I capital I for internet hill. And that's, uh, that's it's right. Long, it's, <laughs> it was like way behind us. <laughs>
the uh the other thing was then um acp you just wrote about uh changes to the affordable connectivity plan well really i think updates in terms of the politics around it and that sort of thing you've long had a complicated relationship with acp i feel like so that's right. that's so what right. are you thinking now um i mean well first of all finally uh the white house is making a formal request from congress to at least keep the program running until pretty much the end of 2024 Folks should know that, you know, the, it's projected to run out of funds probably in the spring of next uh, of next year in 2024. The Biden White House is asking for another six billion to to keep it going. The White House, though, says it will last until the end that that would keep keep it uh, viable to the end of uh, de- December of 2024. But our internal calculations disagree a little bit. We, we, you would actually need six point nine billion to get it to the end of the year. But with the six billion to get us to November. Which again, anything that we can do to extend the life of ACP is a good thing. What might have to be compromised, how this will all play out, we don't know. But let's just assume for a moment that, and there seems to be quite a bit of bipartisan support in Congress for extending ACP. So I got to believe that there's probably something that will get worked out. But this is so little. I mean, like the fact that we're, this is not a solution. I mean, no, no, it's kicking the can down the road. But I want to, I want to take issue. You said finally the White House has asked Congress, like, uh, I don't know if you read the academic literature on uh, the bully pulpit, because uh, I don't. Mm. <laughs> but I did read a magazine article at some point. <laughs> and <laughs> and it suggested that if you look at like the Obama administration, for instance, like there's this idea that presidents can like get out there, they can speak eloquently and change people's minds. And and I, if I'm recalling correctly, and Rye will probably make fun of me if I'm not, because he will have read this in greater depth than I have, um, you know, that when Obama would would prioritize an issue and try to use the bully pulpit, mm. he might increase public support for that issue a little bit. But mm. what he would really do is harden resistance to it. Mm. Like his opponents would be like, all right, now we're really going to fight that thing. Right, right, right. And that's why I think that's what the Biden administration has been doing. Like, I don't think that they've been I haven't criticized okay. them like other people because they haven't okay. said we're we're putting a big priority on ACP because I think they felt that if they did that, it would be harder to actually get it done. You know, that's that, that's a fair point. And, and, and from a strategic standpoint of view, it might actually be the smartest thing to do because we, you know, unfortunately, we, we, we're still in this period of, well, if Biden proposed it, then we're automatically against it, whether whether or not it's a good idea or not or what have you. That's what I'm afraid of. Now, now I got to say the part that, that I'm a little bit like upset about is that like extending the program let's just say for a second that we did extend the program um enough the the six billion dollars congress does appropriate that and it does last until the end of the year which i agree with you is probably not going to happen i mean let's pause for a second and just note that like the fcc just gave out i forget the exact amount but i mean it was like um 100 million dollars 200 million dollars like i mean uh, lots of millions of dollars let's say to groups to try to spur more acp enrollment and the White House projections are that's not going to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, like, I'm a little bit confused about that. Like, I'm more hopeful. I, a lot of these folks that got that money, I think they're going to put good use to it and get more people enrolled. Um, uh, but at the same time, the issue is that if it is going to run out of money in December, that means that in the summer of 2024, they got to start preparing to shut it down. Right. I mean, like we still haven't turned this into something that can get past the election and then be dealt with in the lame duck. It will be supremely disruptive if in under the best case scenario we have right now is that it basically almost runs out of money and then Congress acts to refill it at that point. 
which I think is even doubtful because, you know, we're talking about like at that point, maybe 600, 700, 800 millions of million dollars per month to -hmm. keep this program running. And, you know, I think you and I have long felt that this is an important short term program. There needs to be a longer term thing. But the states and the federal government sure aren't doing anything. You got Syracuse is stepping up, right? Like Chattanooga solved this problem a long time ago. A lot of municipal networks are doing their part. But like there's no solution in the vast majority of places that is going to take the place of this thing eventually. Exactly. That in and of itself is is, is pretty discouraging. And I just don't want to think about what happens if all of a sudden, you know, tens of millions of folks no longer have the benefit. It's an important band-aid until we can kind of get some more structural solutions and, and and what have you. But I think also that one thing that I don't hear enough being argued in making the case for why ACP is important, of course it's important for low-income households to be online. But I think particularly as BEAD is rolling out and they're building networks, especially in rural areas, ACP is going to be really important for the economics on, on, on a lot of these networks, tribal networks, but in rural areas. If a significant chunk of, of, of a subscriber base n- needs ACP, that's going to make a huge difference in, in, the, in, in whether networks are going to be financially sustainable. And, and I don't hear that case being made often enough. And I think it's, you know, it, it, it's an important thing to consider um, in this, you know, internet for all era uh, that we're in and as bead rolls out. And, you know, you've got all these states that, you know, are trying to encourage public-private partnerships. Now, losing the ACP won't be as big of an issue for like maybe the big national companies, but for independent ISPs who could perhaps build new networks in rural areas and what have you, the ACP is an important component in, in financial st- uh, sustainability of those networks or even, you know, whether or not a particular area might be attractive enough to serve. Right. And I actually think it may be a significant uh, input for the uh, big carriers. Uh, Charter, I feel like, has really strategized around trying to get every single person that could get the ACP to get it. And I think, you know, at one point, I think someone did the numbers and Charter was getting, you know, like a big chunk of of it to the extent of which would be more than a billion dollars a year. Now, that's not Mm. all their profit, obviously, but it's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a significant chunk that if they were to lose it uh, would be a big deal. And that's from. Frankly, it makes me a little frustrated. I don't know what Comcast proportion is, but Comcast does a far better job than Charter does of actually serving low-income folks. So, like, well, and all the more reason why you need that long-term solution because when you're planning and if you've got all of this uncertainty about whether or not the ACP is going to be around, mm-hmm. it's just not a good environment to be planning and thinking about spending, you know, an enormous amount of capital to build new networks with this big of a sort of uh, part of the economic equation in this uncertainty. Right. Now, the other thing is that one thing that that will be good is that the White House has asked for removing the device uh, payment option, the device, the $100 device credit that's a part of the ACP. Uh, I've talked to some ISPs that have done a good job with trying to use that, but um, most, I think, haven't done anything with it. And a a lot of the scammers are using that. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like getting rid of that would be good. I don't think that is money that is well spent. I think Congress needs to create a good program that would help get devices out there. Uh, but it, just getting the cheapest thing and giving to people, it's just creating a ton of e-waste and it's it's unnecessary. And it's really creating it, making it easy 
for these fly-by-night companies to fool people. And I feel like they're like giving out these devices on the streets, being like, hey, get your free free device. And then some of those people already had an ACP and they don't know what they're signing up for. And, right. and then it messes with them. And then the folks from uh, you know, NDIA, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, like all those people that are part of that coalition, they're mm-hmm. then using their time to try to roll that stuff back and make sure people can get it back. It's just that device stuff. It's not well thought out. It's not well executed on the whole. And so I'm sorry to the small number of ISPs that have used it effectively, but I think it's smart to get rid of that. And the other thing is I think they're thinking about re- reducing the eligibility. Uh, and right. this is something that is going to happen eventually, right? I mean, I think right now, like four out of 10 Americans are available right. or are right. eligible I mean, for this. 52 and like, million households are eligible. That's a, that's a pretty big chunk of America. Yeah. And so like, I mean, I feel like, I'm, I'm so I'm eligible uh, because um, my son um, has gone to a Title One school, uh, and so uh, we were eligible. We might not be. El- I, I'm so the weird thing is, as you change schools over time, like you know, mm. it's not always clear. Uh, but um, but anyway, like that's not an issue. I think I think it makes sense to continue having that kind of eligibility to make it easy for people. Uh, but the 200 percent above the poverty rate is what I think they're going to be changing. Um, and uh, unfortunately, one of the things I've heard is that. Uh, it may make it harder for people to sign up then like the things that they will be reducing right. for eligible uh, may be the things that uh, allowed uh, low income folks to be able to sign up more easily. And yes. now they'd have to go through more paperwork and they're not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm quite certain that to the extent the ACP, you know, continues to be funded, that there will be or, or whatever, however they resolve this, um, there'll be some trade offs. Yeah. And I mean, that's what's going to happen, right? And at its best, it's not that good of a program. Like it is not going to structurally solve this issue. And that's something that that, that we're trying to push others into reckoning with. That's right. we got to walk and chew gum at the same time on this. Yeah. So now the other thing we've ranted about this over and over again, um, that only describes like a hundred different things probably, but <laughs> in this case, it's the letter of credit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we've, we felt like NTIA did not need to incorporate that. It is a barrier for uh, small ISPs and even midsize ISPs we've seen uh, being able to uh, potentially apply for these funds. Uh, we don't think it, it will do much to change the rate of default that will occur. Inevitably, uh, there will be some projects that don't end up penciling out and it is hard to figure out what projects those are ahead of time. Also, I think, you know, this is something we've talked about on the Connect This show is that I feel like there's so many things up front and then none of them are actually enforced on the back end that hard. And so they put more things up front to try to like gatekeep and make sure they only have viable projects. But I think they should do fewer things up front and have uh, better enforcement of the rules that matter uh, down the line. Because, I mean, we just saw that with the the last round of stimulus funding in 2010, so many of those networks were supposed to allow um, uh, interconnection at reasonable terms, and they didn't. They they just flouted that, and nobody busted them on it. And frankly, one of the problems was that uh, no one wanted to call them publicly on it because they had to work with them, right? And mm-hmm. so you need like an inspector general or someone that is actually checking these things out and has a process. That's one of the things I think we don't have. Right. Because I think I heard you say at one point that you were surprised that NTIA hadn't resolved this letter of credit issues a lot sooner. 
But yeah. we should we should celebrate. This is a small victory that we should celebrate. No, it's a big victory. It makes a big difference for a lot of small ISPs. I mean, you know, the the folks I've talked to from Connect Humanity and other organizations that did the hard work to mm-hmm. uh, educate mm-hmm. NTIA about this and convince them to make this change, they're happy with it. So, so briefly, first of all, uh, letter of credit is still required, but can be waived under different circumstances. Um, most importantly, perhaps more entities can offer a letter of credit, including a bunch of credit unions and then it doesn't it doesn't it also it also allows for the use of performance bonds which was yeah an, an idea that was put forward yeah and i think i mean as best i can tell the difference between a performance bond and a letter of credit is that for a letter of credit you got to have a chunk of money sitting in the bank basically doing nothing except for securing that letter of credit and um in a performance bond it's more like you just make a payment you're like paying an entity and convincing them that you're going to perform well uh but you don't have to set aside a big chunk of money that you're not allowed to put in the ground in the form of of network so that is a better dynamic i think for a lot of networks um they're not going to be happy about that but they can do that they can structure these letters of credit and performance bonds to reduce over time as their obligations reduce, right? So as they've built network um, and hit their milestones, the letter of credit um, will be reduced. And so they'd get some of that capital back uh, or their cost of the performance bond would go down in some way. So um, there's a a number of different tweaks that they've offered, but here's the one that I love the most. Um, States and territories are also free to request waivers for additional circumstances not covered by this programmatic waiver where prospective subgrantees are able to meet the requirements under the NOFO by other means. So that's basically saying to the states, hey, if you're dealing with a subgrantee and you can make a strong case that they don't need a letter of credit, let's talk about it. And mm-hmm. I don't know if we'll see that happening, but to me, that seems like the kind of flexibility we want to see. That's right. Finally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's good news. Uh, and and so uh, high hopes. I don't think that changes that we think the vast majority of this money will still be going to the big cable mm-hmm. and telephone companies, uh, yep. you know, and, uh, you know, it's not a lot we can do about that. And uh, it is a path forward, at least uh, it is right. better to be doing that than to just have 10 million people out there without any network anywhere near them. So uh, we'll move on and we'll keep trying to get those people to have better networks but this is a a place we can move from well said yeah any closing thoughts then i think we are going to be in for an interesting 2024 in broadband particularly as the b dollars start to flow out to states but we shouldn't also allow b to suck all of the oxygen out of the room as if as if b is everything um as if communities can't do anything if they don't have access to B dollars. I mean, there's still lots to be done and lots that will need to be done. And so I think 2024 is going to be, you know, another banner year uh, for broadband. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've railed against this internet for all framing because Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. you know, the majority of people who don't have high quality internet access, uh, it's not because there's not a network near them. Uh, you know, there's that 10, 16 million sort of range, maybe 18 million. I, we don't know because the FCC never bothered to create accurate statistics, but there's a heck of a lot of households that aren't near a network, but there's more households that just cannot use the networks that are near them. And often because, you know, the network is not designed to solve poverty. <laughs> the network okay. is designed to um, to create cash flow to the investors of Comcast and Charter Spectrum. Right. And, uh, you know, we need to get smarter about that and, and tackle that. So I 100% agree with you. 
And I agree with you on the, the the framing of the internet for all. Listen, I look. I'm I'm a big fan of moonshots and high expectations and the whole nine. But it, the reality is is that inevitably, several years from now, when we still are when people are scratching their head and being like, I thought this was supposed to be internet for all, and it's really just internet for some. That that will end up being used as a way to criticize, you know, this effort and the government and the Democrats or whatever. It, as, as to why they shouldn't be doing these things. And so I, I worry about that. Yes. And, uh, and I'll just, I think we can end on this because uh, based on what you're saying, like if people want to engineer the perfect government program, uh, it's not going to happen. That is a recipe for a thought experiment. You should go to a university and play around, but like <laughs> in the real world, we got to do the best we can try things, move on. And, uh, uh, and uh, that's how you make a difference. Not by coming up with a perfect program that has no downsides. Amen. Thank you, Sean. All right. Thank you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.